0: For centuries, humankind has recorded their time on Earth both in the oral and written traditions.
1: However, humans are flawed, and by extension, so are our
0: historical records. We create our own narrative. Just like our ancestors have for all time, we actively decide what is canon and what is falsehood.
1: Our whole lives, we've been committed to exploring the depths of history for the unbred of truth. After receiving degrees from Yale, we have set our sights on the unseeable, the mysterious, and the unknown. We are the Mysteries of History Podcast. So, we're speaking with James McQuiston. He's an uh, author of three books related to Oak Island. Uh, They're titled Oak Island, Missing Links, Oak Island, 1632, and his most recent book, oak island knights so thank you very much for being on the show james uh and thank you for your patience with our audio issues
2: well that's okay i'm happy to be here
1: so uh um i feel like what what really was the most interesting for me last time we talked was when you uh from the perspective of the treasure like you you took it linearly through time like where where and when the treasure in, was in which areas? So, uh, would you mind just starting off there, and 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 giving us a timeline view of of where and when the treasure was located?
2: Okay. Well, the treasure goes uh, hand in hand with the founding of Nova Scotia, and uh, the same people are involved. Uh, William Alexander received Nova Scotia in 1621, and he sent his first ship there but it didn't make it it got stranded in newfoundland so he sent uh that was in 1622 well at the end of 1622 his partner stole a uh, massive treasure uh from one of the richest men in scotland the the man was the marshal of scotland and his family had been the marshals of scotland for generations so they had amassed about 30 castles and uh, just a mammoth amount of treasure so uh he stole that in 22 uh, in october and then the gentleman he stole it from died the following spring and so they more or less indicted him and he had also stolen the the man's wife who was 30 years younger than him and
1: uh did they write a country song afterwards yeah really
2: (laughs) Right after that, he bought a pickup and a hound dog. But, <laughs> so, uh, so they were more or less indicted uh, through twenty three. But during that year, sixteen twenty three, uh, they were their trial was delayed. It was set, then it was delayed, then it was delayed again. And in that year, uh, William Alexander did get a ship to go all the way to Nova Scotia, and they attempted at a settlement about 70 miles below where Oak Island is, Mahone Bay, and that is the same year where three different sources say that a secret estate was built for William Alexander up at New Ross. So um, they be, their trial was uh, delayed, and then in 1625, at the beginning of the year, the king just gave them remission now by they I mean His name was Al Strachan his new wife his brother and a couple other people and uh, They were tried rather in front of a jury They were tried in front of the Privy Council the Kings Privy Council and that was basically run by Sir William Alexander so what it appears to me is that the fix was in right from the beginning? That there was, uh, they knew they were given this land. They knew it was going to take a ton of money to settle it. They needed some powerful men to help them. So they created a new knighthood called the Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia. And they needed financing. And uh, since this gentleman was 70 years old and somewhat on his deathbed, at least in a sickbed, they might have thought, well, if he just passes away, it's going to get dissolved. Who knows how? Who knows how many different ways? But uh, if we just steal it, then we have it. And uh, yeah, there's no but, question, <laughs> right? And the thing about it, two things about that are that this gentleman's uh, Marshall Keith, his son, became also a partner with William Alexander and with Al Strachan, who stole the treasure. So it's not logical that if that would have been his heritage. So it's not logical that he would have uh, just said, oh, well, I'll forgive you for stealing the most massive treasure in Scotland ever that I would have owned if he wasn't in on the deal too. And uh, so I found this in a book uh, called, it was the history of the Freemasons Lodge number one in Edinburgh And um, uh, there's a complete list of the treasure. And Al Strachan, uh, he became the world's first or third Freemason. But William Alexander's two sons became the first and the second. So here are all these people involved in stealing this treasure and and taking it to Nova Scotia. And uh, they are the they're they're called the first non-operative accepted Masons, which is what eventually became the Freemasons. They didn't... I couldn't find the words Freemason used in those records till three years later in 1637. But it's essentially what they are today. They were not Stonemasons. They were non-operative. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, all... And as we know, the Freemasons have taken an inordinate uh, Interest in Oak Island. Uh, most of the, not most of them, but a good share of the, of the millionaires that have invested in it have been Freemasons, including uh, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, and a lot of the other ones. And so, wow. and they have a like a private Freemasons tour every year. I think they have more than one of Oak Island. Different groups go there.
1: So, so concerning this treasure, and they were funding their. Uh, pilgrimage to Nova Scotia. Right. Um, and this is, this is the bulk of, of the actual amount of treasure we believe is on the island. Is that correct?
2: Yes. Now, uh,
1: and, uh, sorry, I just, uh, so how do we know that they didn't spend all of this money, you know, doing, getting ships and men and, and supplies all the way to Nova Scotia? How do we know they didn't use all of that money already? Well,
2: they they may have in fact used some of it. They had they got uh, four ships together in uh, sixteen twenty eight, and they left, but they they also got stranded in Newfoundland and didn't make it there till sixteen twenty nine. But um, uh, it's, William Alexander was the man who was coordinating all of that with the king because the king wanted. The king was uh, King James of England the first, but he was also King James the sixth of Scotland, and he wanted this mm. as bad as anybody. Uh, but he didn't have, you know, the, the kings were almost always poor. You know, they were just spent money so lavishly. Mm. But I, uh, I'm a member of the, uh, I'm a fellow with the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, and that's a group of uh, historians uh, established back in 1780. And so I went to them with my theory and basically the question, do you know or do you know a way to find out what might have happened to the treasure? And they uh, had no knowledge of it. So they sent me to uh, the National Museums of Scotland, which they were close with, uh, gave me two or three emails to contact people there. They didn't know. They sent me to the National Records of Scotland, which would be like our National Archives they didn't know but what they did know was that they had the court records of how they were how their trial was postponed a couple of times and how he was finally given remission for the for the theft so that confirmed that the story i read in the freemasons book was true and i found it uh found a list of the treasure in two other old books but it's very it's very truncated compared to the one that in the freemasons it's very Completely listed. Mm-hmm. So, um, and yes. In, sorry,
1: sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you here. Uh, in in this book, the the history of the uh, Freemasons of Edinburgh. Does it say where this treasure came from? Does it explicitly say that it was stolen money from? Um, uh, sorry, uh, blanking here. Yes. But did it say that it was stolen money? Did it give us a yes. source? Yes,
2: and it even talks about how he uh basically stole the 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 wife too and that they were married the following year after the guy died in in uh sixteen twenty three, shortly after that they were married. It lists all the suspects and uh which it's kinda of surprising in a way that um well it's surprising number one that Al Strachan, since he was known to extol the treasure, would be accepted as uh, one of the first Freemasons, but also uh, that they would have felt that it was so important to catalog the entire story and the entire treasure. You know, Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. just out of the ordinary, because, I mean, there were a lot of early Freemasons. You know, all the first seven had links back to the Knights of Nova Scotia, which was William Alexander's group. Um and then even some later ones uh but they were early on in the in the history of Freemasonry. Uh Robert Moray and George Mackenzie founded the Royal Society, and they were both Mackenzie was a Baronet of Nova Scotia and a Freemason, and uh Moray was the son and grandson of two Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia and Freemasons. So the uh, the fix seemed to be in to an amazing degree. And, uh, you know, the rich get away with it, basically. <laughs> right. I mean, you they're know. well-connected.
1: They're, they're friends with King James and they have an a, yes. a, an agenda, a political agenda in line with King James's political agenda of, of occupying and creating a Nova Scotia in and where it is now.
2: And uh, James uh, actually created the knighthood of the knight baronets of Nova Scotia, but he died four days later. So his son, Charles, took over, and he's the one that actually chartered each individual baronet. By the time they had to leave Nova Scotia in 1632, there were 85 baronets. Each one was required to provide six men of... uh, good standing, like a blacksmith or a minister, mm-hmm. something. They didn't want broken men because they wanted to populate the country with good men. And I kind of have the feeling, based on a lot of circumstantial evidence, that Charles seemed to be uh, have a tough time making up his mind or taking a solid stand on things. And there's a couple pretty out, outstanding examples of that. And I think that William Alexander saw that in him, and he also saw the movement in Great Britain uh, to get rid of royalty that was eventually led by Oliver Cromwell. Mm -hmm. So I believe that he intended to set himself up as the king of Nova Scotia. And there are a number of um, things written about that. Uh, uh, One of them came from a archivist for the uh, Dalhousie University, which is up in Halifax, um, who wrote that uh, he had visions of empire in his head. Mm-hmm. Dreams dreams of empire revolving in his mind is exact is actually what the person wrote. And um, I, I give several examples in my book, Oak Island Nights, of why I think that he may have wanted to do that. But he himself wrote a book called encouragement to colonies that was, uh, you know, meant to encourage people to sign up as baronets. And after his name, he wrote some Latin words, and the Latin words translated say there will be another Typhus and a second group of Argo heroes. Well, that seems so out of place, but Argo was the ship captained by the Greek hero Typhus, who was on the quest for the golden Police, and the legend was that a second coming of typhus was going to you know, usher in a golden age. So essentially what William Alexander was saying right under his name is, I am the coming of the second typhus, and I'm going to usher in a golden age for Scotland. And he cites a Frenchman who had helped the Scots a lot and how he um, re- retired to a remote place in America where he could escape the vexations of Europe and all that. And I think that that's exactly what he had in mind. He was given this land. It was pretty barren. There were just a few French, which he either chased out or absorbed. And he had a lot of the Scottish chieftains behind him. And he had, his partner had just stolen this giant treasure. So he was setting himself up, I believe, to just establish his own kingdom in Nova Scotia. And what happened was, the king of England and the king of France were brother-in-laws. And so Charles was supposed to have received a big dowry from the king of France and he only got half of it. (laughs) So, so um, they made a deal that if Charles would give Nova Scotia back to the French, he would get the other half of his dowry. So, This just shows how he wasn't a strong leader because four days after he told the king of France, yes, I'll give you Nova Scotia back, he told the Knights Baronet, oh, don't worry, I'm not going to give Nova Scotia back. So there was a lot of confusion there, but eventually in spring of 1632, the French did come there and oust the remaining Scots. It was somewhat friendly. Some Scots stayed behind and resisted, but the bulk of them left. And, in the order to leave, they were actually even allowed to take their gold and silver. It was listed right in the in the order of the things they were required to take right, right. gold and silver so that's when I think it was in the early spring it would have been impossible to sail back across the North Atlantic based on weather records, and so I believe they that was that is on the leeward side of. Nova Scotia, and I believe they came around the horn, saw how bad the weather was, pulled into Mahone Bay, which is the deepest bay, not depth in water, but deepest into the land. Mahone, uh, Oak Island is towards the back of the bay.
1: Protected from the storm so that their ships right. don't don't
2: get wrecked. And I saw two, uh, Doug Crow from the show there uh, showed me two different depth charts that show the water relatively close to the island. In places to be up to 30 foot deep, and I looked up the draft of ships from that era, and they were it was only 12 to 16 foot deep. So they certainly could have pulled up within a a short boat ride over to the island. And uh, there's a yacht club uh, in Mahone Bay that actually has a map of how to make a direct tack from the ocean to their club, and You only have to make a little veer at the very end to scoot over to Oak Island. So um, it would have been uh, a pretty natural place to go. And if, in fact, Alexander did have a secret estate right up the hill at New Ross, uh, it would have been the the natural place to go. Uh, Alexander had given that land around there to his only French ally in Nova Scotia the former French governor. So uh, it would have been the most natural place to go for two or three reasons uh, until they could head back. We know they made it, somebody made it back by June because in June, Alexander wrote to the king saying, what's going on? The French just booted us out. And of course, Charles again said, don't worry. (laughs) You know, it's only temporary. So I think they buried what what they didn't, think was necessary to take back and what they did not want to take back to be found out that, yes, we took all this with us. And it doesn't have to exclusively be uh, the Strachan treasure uh, because uh, a good share of these Knights Baronet were connected in some way in the past to the Knights Templar. Um, if you look at the entire list, it's about, I could connect about 25% of them. But if you just look at the first batch that went, the first dozen, let's say, or two dozen, they were all connected in some way to the Knights Templar. So they were Scottish clans. They likely had a lot of treasure there, and they wanted to start a new life. Since Scotland had been absorbed into England, you know, I believe they wanted to start a new life in in uh, Nova Scotia, and in my book, it, I I print the uh, enticements that William Alexander was offering them. Uh, they, w- they would get a 16,000-acre estate for themselves, and they would get a 14,000-acre town that they could lay out any way they want. Uh, they could name it whatever they wanted. And the idea was to have 100 of these around the coastline of Nova Scotia, so it would establish... Uh, a strong country there and would all be led each town would be led by a clan chieftain that was a knight, baronet, and um uh, the town that would be beholden to that person. So well, I, well, I
0: actually I have a question um for you, James. Something Carl and I have argued about quite a bit is all this pottery they're finding around the money pit. Um we're wondering why would someone bury something like pottery? Do you think that's related to this treasure or is that maybe just an accident?
2: Well, one of the items, you know, it could be, uh, there could be multiple excuses for that, but one of the items on the treasure list was just a generic, the word plenishings of -hmm. these castles. And it's a uniquely Scottish word and it means the day-to-day items within the
1: the dining sets. Yeah, uh, yeah,
2: or, or even the chair in a corner. You know, anything <laughs> like that, they just called it. And, and I guess it kind of equates to furnishings. But uh, so uh, that is, uh, I can't think of which one it was, uh, maybe Chapel. But no, it was Dunfield, Robert Dunfield, that did, did the digging with the uh, bulldozer. He found some and sent it to Oxford, and they dated it to, the 1600s which is great for my theory hmm. and um, but other items that have come up out of there that are directly on the treasure list one of them is uh, there were two gold chains on the list and in 1897 they pulled up three links of gold chain now you know that doesn't absolutely prove it but right right so chain
1: can come from anywhere technically I mean yeah, <laughs> yes
2: And the other thing that was on the list was uh, 36 dozen gold buttons. Now, the reason why that would be considered a treasure is because they would actually wear buttons. And if they ran into somebody they owed money to at a party or something, they would pop a button off their coat and give it to them to pay their debt. So um, they did find that one gold plated button out of the Gal 1 spoils. Now, I don't know if that would qualify, but. It was gold and it was a button, but the one that's the most enticing is the parchment because in 1897, they pulled up a piece of parchment that had uh, Indian ink writing on it. Well, that pit had been uh, flooded since uh, 1804. So for 93 years, this piece of parchment lay down there in water, but it was not smeared. And Yet when they pulled parchment up in 2017, that was all smeared. So what that tells me is that that parchment was in some type of waterproof container yes. until the drill bit hit it and pulled it up.
1: Well, I think then, I think another uh, salient point about the parchment is that there is no reason for somebody who's a searcher, let's say, searching for the for the treasure. There's no reason for them to. Like even if parchment is a rele- relevant way of writing during the time that they're searching, there's no way that they would have written documents down while they're actually digging for treasure. So, I f- I feel like the parchment is really significant to me mm-hmm. because it actually signifies the, yes, somebody intentionally put like or dug down here to hide something. There there's this parchment is something that was hidden. Yes, and, and and buried them to be protected.
2: And what's interesting about the treasure list is that the very last item on the list, it's called. It says a grit cloth bag containing the title beads for all these castles. Well, I had no idea what that meant, so I contacted all my sources in in Scotland, and they eventually put me in the, in touch with the uh, main uh, curator of historic fabrics for uh, the Scottish National Museums, and she said that grit simply meant great. It was a great cloth bag, and she said what they were were, they sometimes call them seal bags, but they're a thick canvas bag that's soaked in wax, and then the deed is put inside of it, and it's sealed to be waterproof. And the reason for that is because some of these castles stayed in the families for Hundreds of years, and that was the title deed for that castle. So they had to be able to pull it out a couple hundred years later and have a readable deed in order to transfer it. So if you imagine that this piece of, and they were always written on parchment in India ink. Uh, right. Parchment was generally used for higher end uh, documents, not can I Can tool. I ask
1: you what exactly is Indian ink?
2: Uh, I think it's made of soot and vegetable or animal oil. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure. mm-hmm. uh, but so uh, if that were the case and there were several of maybe there were several of these seal bags down there, one for each castle, or maybe they were put inside of a larger bag or whatever, but they would hold the water back until it was punctured. And you can imagine a you know, big metal drill going down through it would puncture it. And <laughs> if that came right straight back up and didn't have time to really soak in the water, you you could see the the lettering on it. So
0: now, James, I, I you're sure that these aren't the lost works of William Shakespeare, right?
2: Well, I don't think they are, but uh, William Alexander was uh, well known to Francis Bacon. They, they were both on the Privy Council. They were both poets and writers. They lived at the same time. Actually, while... In the same year that, uh, same years that Alexander was trying to get his, uh, build his utopia in Nova Scotia, Bacon wrote his very last book about a utopia to the West. Now, he placed his utopia over in, I think, over by China or something, but uh, they were both of the kind of the same mindset as that there's a, it's a big world out there and we don't have to live in plagues and, under the Pope and Mm -hmm. under the King and all that, we can go somewhere else and create a utopia. So they knew each other, but I I don't think, I don't buy into the plays of Shakespeare. If anything, I know Bacon was concerned that when he died, which he did die before the ship left, he died in 1626 and the ships left in 1628. Uh, He was concerned that either his enemies would uh, destroy his work or they would plagiarize it. And so he had even talked about burying his, and I'm not talking about his Shakespeare plays. I'm talking about his scientific papers because he had written a ton of, uh, you know, when he died, he was actually working on how to freeze chicken. (laughs) And he, he was uh, out in the cold weather working on it and caught a cold and died. But he was, he was arrested in 1621, the same year Alexander received Nova Scotia. Um, because of his scientific writings, because they were considered heretical, you know. Right. So um, he, so then King James got him out of prison, but at that point he pretty much gave up on politics and the court and all that. So I don't, I don't say that there wasn't some kind of Sir Francis Bacon writings taken with them for posterity, just, you know, not with the idea, of, hey, we're going to go buried on Oak Island, right? It could just be coincidental. Yeah, take, sure. when you start when you get your university started there, stick my papers in your book. And yeah. speaking of universities, this I I didn't add this to my book till the Saturday before my presentation because I only found it out the week before. But Dalhousie University, that's up in uh, up in Halifax. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was started by the Earl of Dalhousie, who had previously been the Grand Master of the Scottish Freemasons. Uh, two two uh, earls later, that is the man that this book about Edinburgh Lodge Number One was written to. His name was, or he was a uh, Earl of Dalhousie. Um, And he was not only the grandmaster of the Scottish Freemasons, but he was the acting grandmaster of the English Freemasons. He died a year after that book was written, and he was the acting. So what really adds to the fact is that another Freemason, early Freemason, that was uh, initiated uh, was uh, the Dalhousie Earls, or their actual name was Ramsey. Well, uh, David Ramsey was the personal assistant to King James, and he was initiated as an early Freemason, and the witnesses for his initiation were two sons of William Alexander and Al Strachan. The first three Freemasons uh, witnessed his. So that puts the Ramsey family directly in contact with the Strachan family and the Alexander family, and so now you have uh, Dalhousie University being started by the Ramsey family, and the early Oak Island Association, one of the first ones to actually do serious digging, they had their meetings, held their meetings at Dalhousie University, and the guy who translated the 90-foot stone was a language teacher at Dalhousie University, Well, in addition to all of that, the uh, Bank of Nova Scotia held their first meetings at Dalhousie University. Well, one of their very first investors was a man named William Strachan, and his nephew, John Strachan, owned the Nolan Cross lots on Oak Island. There was another early investor whose brother-in-law also owned lots on Oak Island so you know i i'm connecting a lot of dots but if you want to see uh, a particular story you can see where the strachan family knew that treasure was there they came back bought the lots at least found some of it now they have all this money so they invested into what was it was uh, its original purpose was to finance nova scotia so they invested into the bank of nova scotia which meets at Dalhousie University, started by their friends, the Ramses, and that becomes Scotiabank.
1: James, I I have to ask you a question here. Is there there any other plausible reason why so many of the central characters in in our Oak Island story would be drawn to Oak Island, other than the fact that they're burying treasure there? I mean, is it like the... is it the modern day equivalent of like Malibu for the, for all these Scottish people? Like, is this, is this the most romantic beach they can find? I, I'm wondering like, why are they going here if not because of treasure?
2: Well, that, and as I was saying earlier, um, if you were wanting to get away from a rough Atlantic ocean, you'd want to go to the back of the bay and it's at the back of the bay and it's near land, uh, in fact, some people say that it was actually connected by a natural causeway back then, but there's no evidence of that. But at least it's close to, main, to the mainland, and it had fresh water on it that was fairly easy to dig a well to get fresh water, which obviously was always needed if you are at sea. So, uh, it, and if, in fact... Alexander did have a secret estate built up at New Ross. It was right below New Ross, along Gold River. Whether Gold River was navigable or not, there's two different schools of thought on that, but it doesn't matter because at least it gives you a, something to follow to go up the hill to the lake that's at the top that is the headwaters of it. And right there is where the foundation was built. Also at that foundation is... The, the well that they showed a couple of years ago that's um, still uh, has good water and nobody knows when it was built a very well a very well built well um, one of the best around there and uh so one of the things that prompted the new book and uh caused quite a bit of excitement was that back in 1975 a knighthood medallion was found in the dirt off to the side of the foundation well nobody knew what it was and there was only one existing photo but it was a polaroid it was very out of focus but uh doug Kroll had told me about it they knew that it was dated 17 i mean 1671 and uh they thought it was a french medallion because it had french type on it but it was the order of the garter knighthood medallion for great britain Mm -hmm. and so uh since it was dated, I went and looked at that date, and there were only three men initiated as uh, Order of the Garter Knight in that year. Wow. So I was able to track down the other two medallions. One was given to the King of Sweden, and uh, that was in a Swedish museum until it was stolen with a lot of other items, and they believed it was all melted down for whatever uh Silver or gold was in was in the prop, the items that were stolen. The other one was in the British Museum, and that was uh, actually given to a uh, German man. That's in the British Museum. So I was able to get photos of those two: one from the Swedish Museum and one from the British Museum. Mm-hmm. So that only left one person in all of history to have gotten that third medallion that was found at at uh, New Ross. Of course, I had to see how he was related. Well, he was the financier of a major treasure hunter named William Phipps, wow. who eventually became the governor of Nova Scotia. And he, Phipps was not eligible to be a knight because he was born in America, number one, and number two, he it was from a middling a family of middling means. He didn't own any land in Scotland. So um, he had already brought, about a treasure of about fifty-eight million dollars in in U.S. money today, to the King of England uh, and Christopher Monk, uh, who was the the third person to get the medallion, and then he was made an honorary knight, and he actually uh, people would call him the New England Knight. He was from New England. He's like Even the equivalent.
1: Of, I, I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones. He's like the Onion Knight. In other words, he he did something great. So, they gave him an honorary title for being a good guy.
2: And I think that my theory is that Christopher Monk gave him his medallion because he had just been handed millions and millions of dollars. And he did give uh, Phipps' wife a cup that, in today's money, appears to be worth about a quarter of a million dollars. So, oh gosh. he was generous. And, you know, if he gave her the cup, he had to have given. Phipps something even nicer, since he's the man that did all the work to get the treasure off the ship. So, uh, and, and the kicker for the whole thing is that in Phipps' own diary about his uh, adventures into Nova Scotia originally, before he became governor, he said that his, he and his men were searching for plunder, that was the word he used, uh, by land, by sea, and underground. So he writes back in the early or the mid-1600s, I am in Nova Scotia digging in the ground for stolen treasure. <laughs>
1: and and so. what he, what, I mean, like, I, I'm just theorizing, what are any kind of plausible alternatives to our Oak Island treasure that he could be looking for? I mean, there isn't that much history in the Americas at this point, and if there's not a lot of history, there's probably not a lot of money either, right. other than, you know, what we already know about. About the the knights coming across across the ocean,
2: right. And the only other place that had much settlement before this was the Port Royal colony on the leeward side of the island that William Alexander had overtaken to chase the French out. Up in Cape Breton uh, and most of the rest of Nova Scotia, there was there were very few settlements. It was mostly the Micmac. First Nations tribes that controlled them. There were a few settlements, but there's no other indication of any kind of treasure, as you just said. Uh, so what what was he looking for? And he used the word specifically plunder, which I believe means stolen treasure. So um, I think that one scenario anyway is that he was told by Christopher Monk, go up there and look for that. Alexander and Strack and Treasure. We don't know where they buried it, but we know they had something to do with New Ross. He uh, went there, and the medallion itself—it's on the cover of my book. It's really cool. This is the only other. This is actually the only good photo of the medallion—the one that's on the cover of my Uh, book—because this gentleman had never shown it in public. The day he showed it in public, he showed it to me and Doug and Rick, and he was extremely nervous about it extremely nervous and we uh rick and doug had to get a letter from the nova scotia government saying they would not take it away from them because the way they work it up there is anything found before 1980 they don't bother people but from 1980 on they had so many people diving on shipwrecks and taking items and and destroying old foundations and all that that they passed a law saying if you find anything of heritage or cultural significance you have to give it to the government you might get a percentage of the worth of it or something. But and that's why
0: Laird's on the show now, right? Just kind of right, keeping right. an eye on everything.
2: And a lot, at least some of that items, the, the items in the Oak Island Museum, they call it an interpretive center, uh, that are in there in the summer actually belong to the government. And they're on loan during the summer. And then and then they're given back. So, um, but the... But There's even a second kicker on top of all that, because William Alexander's personal secretary who uh, developed all the paperwork that all these knights were signing off on, his name was James Philp. Well, when William Alexander died in, in Scotland in 1640, Philp sold his land, and there's no record of where he went. Well, William Phipps, his father was named James Phipps, and he shows up in New England uh, not too long after that, and there's no genealogy from his father back. So I looked up the names Phipps and Phipps, and they're both just diminutives of the name Phillips, and they've been used interchangeably for years. Or I see. Something. So it could very well be that James Phillips, the private secretary that knew everything about everything William Alexander was doing, left Scotland to save his neck because Cromwell was on a roll then, killing, he even killed Charles the First. he beheaded him in 1649, but he was after sure. everybody. He goes over to Nova Scotia and then makes his way over to New England, which is just right across the Bay of Fundy, I think it's 200 miles over roughly, and his son, William, grows up there, hears about the story from his father, but doesn't know all of the story. He just knows there was this treasure stolen. He tell he takes, he takes gets the Spanish galleon money, takes it back to Christopher Monk and the king, and says, Hey, now, my dad told me about this other treasure somewhere around New Ross in that vicinity. I don't know where. And they said, Here's the money. We're going to finance you. You go find it. He gets to new ross and the 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 medallion itself has got a little bit of damage at the bottom, and it, it we we were trying to guess what it could have happened it's it's smashed lately it, it looks but, like
1: it we're looking at the photo right now uh, are you talking about like the bottom quarter of the medallion?
2: yes, where the dragon is, but if you look at the opposite right. side where the text is it's totally smashed there, ah. so our idea was that. One scenario would be that they he actually got in a battle with either First Nations members or the French that were roaming around and was struck in the medallion that knocked it off his neck, damaged it and it fell in the dirt and he had to get out of there or he just accidentally dropped it while they were digging or working and somebody stepped on it and that's what smashed the that's what smashed it down right there. I mean no you know it could have been something else could have been smashed before. Christopher Monk gave it to him, but uh,
1: I guess I'm skeptical that it would be smashed in battle because I, did did people wear wear medallions into battle?
2: Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think that's a good question. But he probably was very proud of it, and that was probably like when people wear ties to work. You know, that gives them oh yeah, <laughs> uh, or, or when, special when they wear, when they wear badges
1: when they wear badges yeah. that, that yeah. show how great their achievements have been. It, it might be another intimidation factor too. I mean, maybe you wear a medallion to show off how awesome you are, at, yeah. At exactly. Killing people, I guess. <laughs> but it, it,
2: in any case, it ended up there with no explanation and laid in the dirt till they they were playing. These two gentlemen, they were playing with their Tonka toys in the dirt when they found it. Wow! And the wow. one, <laughs> the one guy he that actually owns it is the is the guy that pulled it out of the dirt, and he's been been very protective of it all these years, never showing it to anybody, because he was afraid they were going to take it away from him. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you're a kid and you find something like that. It's silver. It's about a little less than two-inch circle, and it's a little less than a quarter-inch thick. So, you know, just in its silver value, it's worth something, but its historic value is... You can't put a price on it, it because... Even though three were given in 1671, they stamped, from what I can tell, they stamped the fronts of them, maybe a few dozen of them to last over several years. Then, when they were, because they didn't know how many people they were going to yeah. actually knight, so then they, they would stamp, bulk, but they saved right, it. yeah, but then they would stamp the back sides, uh, you know, as the years went by, and. On the back side, there is a common ivy around the outside, which probably was stamped when the front was stamped. But if you look at the type itself, it varies slightly on each one of those three, because I have Mm -hmm. photos of the fronts and backs of all three of them. So that tells me that when they did that date stamping, there's a little phrase from the king, and then there's a date. Those were done on an individual basis, and so they didn't hit them quite, Exact. So, what that means is that all three of them are one of a kind in history because right. even though they're all from the same year and they say the same thing, the backside is slightly askew. Uh, Not only from, that,
1: I mean, well, it seems like one of the most prestigious awards that a king could give out, like absolutely. at the time that this was given out. Is that true? Is this one yes. of the more like he gave it to the king of Sweden? So, it has to be really it's mean like something. a Nobel Prize or something. Yeah,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. It's the highest knighthood you can achieve in in great britain um the the knighthoods were the the lowest level knighthood was called a bachelor knight and that was generally if you um if you did something of mater- meritorious service like you uh maybe stood up to the enemy in a battle or whatever or, or went and discovered something for the king you know he would make you that kind of a knight but the the order of the garter was actually instituted to take over for the Knights Templar and in its founding it there are three reasons listed for why it was founded and the second one reads that it was to carry on the work of the Knights Templar and the Knights of St. John so is this, was,
1: is this like a, a Church of England equivalent to the Knights Templar is this are these is it a religious thing that they're
2: no no but uh uh but it's uh you know, for chivalry, it's all based around chivalry. Mm-hmm. And I have to read you a real short poem uh, that a uh, uh, gentleman, Ambrose Bierce, wrote, but it's it kind of points out the silliness of it all in a way. He, he says, once a warrior gentle of birth, then a person of civic worth, now a fellow to move our mirth, Warrior, person, and fellow no more we must knight our dogs to get any lower. <laughs> so, so in other words, you know, originally they were, uh, they were honors given for uh, bravery and chivalry and all that, and then they were given for meritorious service. But if you look at the history of knighthood, there were tons of knighthoods uh, that were established after this point in all over europe uh, that were a limited number of people and uh limited level of acceptance by everyone but the knight the order of the garter is the again is the highest knighthood and it you know would be the most respected of all the knighthoods and again like you said he gave it one was given to the king of sweden another one was given to uh this guy his name was john of saxony and he was uh a uh, powerful german uh, nobleman and the other one was given to christopher monk who was the man who financed the treasure hunting on the spanish galleon that they say it saved england the the money that came over england was in such poor shape financially that that single treasure uh saved them and william phipps is the guy that brought it back to them so Even though he doesn't tie into my theory about what was buried on Oak Island, he ties into it to the extent that his father may have been the one who told him that it was in that general area of Oak Island, New Ross. He should go look for it.
1: Right, he gives us corroboration at the time, like closest to the time of where the treasure might have, when the treasure might have been buried, corroboration that this could actually be like, there could be something to this.
2: Yeah, and uh, I read, I have one article written back in the 1800s that said that people were looking for treasure in the on the Mahone Bay Islands for uh, 25 years, at least 25 years before the money pit was discovered, and that could explain how they just recently found that the logs on the spillway were pre-money pit discovery but much later than my story uh but i also had another article and i lost track of it but i had already i had sent the details of it to doug and rick because i've sent them a few hundred emails (laughs) but uh (laughs) uh, it actually said that they had been hunting on oak island for a hundred years before the uh money pit was discovered well if you take a look at the time period that uh William Phipps was at New Ross, that would have been just about 100 years before the money. pay. he was there in the late 1600s, and it was found in the late 1700s, 100 years before. So I think that people, a lot of people knew that something had happened with his treasure. A few people knew enough details to narrow it down to where to look. And the Strachan family, obviously, they bought the Nolan Cross lot. So that really adds significance to that Nolan's Cross because mm-hmm. they, the only lots they owned were the lots that make up the... It wasn't like, oh, it happened to be on other lots that they owned. Is they it owned also is
1: it, is it also possible they just couldn't purchase any other lots? I mean, they were just getting what they could on on the Malibu island of Oak Island?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it could be. Uh, but, you know, for... Well, uh, Alexander Strachan was the third Freemason. He stole the treasure. He actually signed as a witness to the land around Oak Island that was given to that French, uh, the former French governor. And then John Strachan comes along. He's a Freemason, and he owns the Nolan Cross lots. And I know he's from, the, I pro, I I narrowed it down that absolutely he's from the same family, from the same uh, Shire, or they call them, be the same county uh, in Scotland. So, and the other thing is their their symbol. There's just so much to this in this book. I mean, when people read it, they're just going to be floored by all the details. But, and I don't pretend that I found them all myself. Doug Crowell helped. Uh, tell Hancock, who's the Grand Master of a uh, Grand Historian of the Grand Lodges of Freemasonry and Nova Scotia helped, the, the Society of Antiquaries helped. A lot of different people helped, but um, the, the fact that the, the Strachans were prominent in Halifax, there were, I, even today there's about 30 of them there, they were prominent in the founding of the Bank of Nova Scotia, they were prominent in the founding of the first Freemasons Lodge in Nova Scotia, they owned the Nolan Cross lots, and then, when you go back in time to Al Strachan, he stole the treasure. he was the third freemason he was the partner of William Alexander. he signed the the first charter individual charter for the land in the area of Oak Island. I believe it included Oak Island, and so does Doug croll and we've amassed quite a bit quite a bit of information to prove that it did now the guy may never have even set foot on it because he owned a lot of islands and he you know that french governor he owned a lot of islands and he owned, mm-hmm. owned a lot of land right. but before that particular charter there were no individual charters there were just you know william alexander owned all of nova scotia and before him the french owned all of what they called Acadia. there wasn't like individual land grants that they didn't start till the knights baronet so uh, there's an awful lot of coincidence there for that not to be connected and Again, I just love what I call kickers, but uh, John Strachan, who owned the Nolan Cross Lots, had a ship that he called the Stag. Well, the Stag has been the symbol of the Strachan family. They know it for a fact since 1309, because they have documents of that. So he actually named his ship after the the symbol, if you want to say, of the Strachan family. And uh, Doug told me that in the 1970s, a shipwreck was found off the shores of Oak Island. It was dated to the 1600s, and on it were found a set of silverware, and on the silverware handles was a coat of arms that included the stag.
0: Hmm.
2: So there's just so many little pieces like this. The the dots are just on their own, just lining up. You know, you, uh, I got the basic outline, and then we've just been filling the dots in, and wow. that, that's what Rick says on. That closing uh, scene, uh, that was just so neat to replay it and hear it, because I don't, when you're in the heat of the moment, and the cameras (laughs) are going, and and people are, war room, yeah, and people are butting in, saying this and that, and you're just trying to keep the flow going in the right direction, but to go back later and listen to what he said, and what uh, Doug said, and even what Charles said, which meant a lot because Charles is a very quiet guy and his family's been there since the money pit was found. His ancestors signed deeds and wills and all that for the some of the original discoveries discoverers of the money pit. So um he's had he's had to absorb a ton of stuff in his life and he also happens to be a Freemason. And so Oh that explains the hat. Yeah and the ring. There's been times where you could see his Freemasons ring, too. So, um, and he's the one that actually conducts the private Freemason tours of the island. So, um, to have him say, and you back it all up with facts, (laughs) was just kind of, and I I honestly don't remember him saying that when I was sitting there, because again, I was packing up my belongings, and we'd been in there for two hours. That's the one thing that's interesting about it, is that they they told me right up front, you can talk an hour, you can talk two hours, but we're only going to use five or six minutes. This was Prometheus, because that's what they do. Right. Well, they gave me at least double that time, and they were trying to absorb a, a theory that's much bigger than what was shown on the show. But what can they do? They can only hit the highlights. Well, that's uh, actually
1: know, a good that's actually a good point. I mean, the show did, I mean, we're getting such a broad view of your theory right here on our podcast. Uh and I think it's really great for listeners to have. What what would it, going back and looking at your your segment on the show, what would you want to say in addition to that? What would you want to clarify to help people understand best what you're
2: really saying, how this treasure got got here? Well, they uh, did not focus much on the Freemasons at all. They did mention the book that I found it in, and they didn't actually say the word Freemason. They said the Edinburgh Lodge Number 1. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the Freemasons are a major key in this, and my whole theory uh, is a connection of the Knights Templar to the Freemasons, which everybody's been looking for that, and there may be other ones. I'm not certainly saying that mine's unique but i gave a talk to the local freemasons uh, here it was kind of uh, funny because it was a big room that uh, i'd never been in a mason's lodge and it was they had the theater chairs around the edges and I, they stood me at a podium in the center you know and it was a little bit oh wow uh you know but uh their historian came up to me before i even started and he said i've been searching for a connection between the freemasons and the templars for 40 years and i'm telling you there isn't one and i said well i'm not here to argue about that i'm just here to tell you what i found and they had told me only talk for a half hour and only talk about the connection of the templars to the freemasons don't talk about oak island so i get done with my talk and i ask if there's any questions and for another hour they ask questions about oak island (laughs) 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 So luckily I had, um, I, I know this all by heart by now. So at the end I was selling my books. That was earlier books, not not the Oak Island Knights, That wasn't written yet. And this old gentleman was waiting in the wings and he waited till everybody else left. Then he came up to me and he said, I've been studying this for 40 years. And he said, I think you found the connection that I've been looking for. So, you know, it, it, when you hear stuff like that from, uh, I mean, I don't know, he's probably 30 third-degree Knights Templar Freemason himself, you know, and, and uh, so uh, it isn't the only connection, but it, it these, these things are all documented. In my book, Oak Island Knights, I have a lot of documents. Either I've reprinted all of them or I've reprinted the central part of them that is significant to the story, and these are not anything I made up. These are just things I found. And anybody, and I give the sources to them all. So if anybody wants to go double check my work, all they got to do is go to that source and read it, and they'll see that I'm I'm not just theorizing. This is uh, th- this is a fact. And like Rick said, I'm taking a lot of facts, and then I'm saying, well, this fact seems to be related to this fact, which seems to be related to this, and and drawing this picture of it. So, uh, the, to answer your question more directly, the one thing that I wished would have been talked about more was the Freemason connection. Also, it would have been nice if the medallion could have been talked about, but the medallion's a whole show on its own. How right. it was discovered, how we trace down who it belonged to, how it might have got there. I mean, that's more than five minutes right there. So I, I can't say enough good about the Oak Island team, of course, they're just the nicest people, but also Prometheus, because they were, they never, it's not scripted, a lot of people like to say that, but it's not mm. Uh, They just they arrange, you know, you tell them what's going to happen and then they have to arrange to have their cameras ready and all that, you know, but they don't butt in. And uh, I was filmed probably between 19 or between 2017 and 2018. I was filmed over three days and I would guess that the filming from start to finish um, was added up to about five hours and not once in all that time did anybody tell me what to say nobody not even the oak team or anybody they don't they didn't say when we get to this part make sure you say whatever they just listened to me and edited it so um so that kind of dispels that myth that it's besides the fact there's so many people and so much going on they'd have to have 10 script writers (laughs) writing steady and and those guys would have to be studying their lines and all that and that's just not the way it is there it's it's sure. very laid back mm-hmm. until the action starts.
0: Well, and we were talking the other day. Famous. It just feels like something you would want to do. That's how you want to spend your summer is hang out with your friends. You wake go up, look for wake some up, treasure. Yeah,
1: wake up in a on an island and just like go dig and like Gary Drayton points his metal detector somewhere and you, you say, <laughs> Okay <laughs> Yeah,
0: I want to be Jack
1: Bagley.
2: <laughs> well and that's and so you that, want to grow
1: a beard, but you can't.
2: To that point, uh so when I was, Rick called me a couple of weeks before I was going to air on the show and he didn't know which show it was going to be, but he just wanted to give me a heads up and, uh, believe me, that's the third time he's called. I was sitting in a chair and I felt like I had to sit down in a chair <laughs> each time he calls and he's so polite and respectful when he calls. But, um, uh, I said, you know, what's drew me to the show even before I ever thought about contacting you folks is it's just like I called up some of my buddies and said, Hey, you know, get the pickup truck and a shovel and a chainsaw and see if Billy will get his backhoe and we're going to go up there and we're going to solve this damn thing. And he said, that, <laughs> he said that's exactly what it's been. Yep, that's, that's exactly what it is. You know, except and so, instead
1: of a backhoe, it's a it's an industrial drill for yeah. <laughs> oil <rigging>. dynamite
2: dynamite <laughs> seismic drilling. And and you know he he worked so hard at it and he. Uh, I was told that he was there seven days a week, most of the time during the season. Doug Mm -hmm. told me that he was working 10 to 12-hour days and left exhausted by the end of the summer.
1: Is it really work when you're just, like, palling around, though? It doesn't seem like work to me, but that's hard to... Yeah. Obviously, he's working, but, like, is it really work if you're doing what you love?
2: Yeah, And and they do start the days early. They have a food trailer, and everybody goes there and gets... Coffee and donuts, and they they line up all the production crews, pretty big, probably ten to at least ten to twelve people, and they say, okay, they want to go down to Smith's Cove today. They're going to do some backhoe, whatever. So you, you, and you go, and then you guys follow Gary and Jack because they're going over to Lot Twenty Five or whatever. So they're giving their them and their instructions like that, that so they know where to go. But the Oak Island team's there too. You know, they're all there, you know, at least by about eight o'clock in the morning seems to be the starting time. And then they just go cause they're so enthused about it. They just go until the sun goes down, you know, and, and, uh, but, uh, Rick, he, so I'm standing there talking to him. And this was in a lull kind of after all the activity was over and, uh, a lot of people had gone away. And, uh, we were talking, and he opens up the door to his pickup truck and pulls out a chainsaw. And I said, "What are you doing?" And he said, "Well, I've got to go cut some paths for the tours because we have dynamite planted up there." That was that. <laughs> that was that seismic drilling that they were doing up on the Money Pit Hill. They were just—I must have been there, you know, about the time they did that, or shortly before they did it, because the dynamite right. was planted. But I'm thinking to myself, "Why don't you go sit in the chair and talk to the tourists and let some?" a low level guy go up and cut those trees down, you know, but he doesn't want to do that. He just, no. he wants to have fun. That's that's, that's, you're right. That's the whole thing. He wants to have fun. So, um, they were all very nice people. Uh, um, they're what you see on TV. I'll tell you a, a quick story. Uh, the first year we went up there, we were all sitting on the, uh, on the deck of the old war room. And, uh, here comes Dave. And, you know, Dave's famous for that one word that they bleep. So, uh, he's walking <laughs> over to us. So, my wife says, There's the bleep bleep man. And he says, You're <laughs> effing right. Just like that. And he didn't even know us, he hadn't even met us or anything. And then everybody laughs, you know. So, <laughs> they are just, they are just, all of them are like you see. Uh, it, 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 my experience with them over a two year period is emailing and talking. Doug is such a fanatic about the history. Uh, Rick's just the heart and soul of it all, you know. I mean, uh, Marty, I only met him one day but he's very practical, pragmatic type of a guy. Uh, He didn't sit in on any of the, uh, the two times I was filmed. Well, the three days I was filmed, Marty wasn't there any of them, which I kind of felt bad but I know he's also trying to run a multi-million dollar energy business, you know, and who am I, you know, amongst all these other theorists and all that well he's got to fund
1: oak island so he's yeah yeah he's off making the bankroll and (laughs) everyone else is getting dirty and he can pay them (laughs) having fun yeah yeah that's true Uh, and
2: and i i would say the only one that isn't like he is on tv is gary only because he's twice as hilarious and (laughs) and he's a total jester and clown just steady i mean he never quits and you know, they only show so much of it on, of that on TV and a lot of it that I uh experienced with him you wouldn't even be able to show on T V. <laughs> you know, you'd have to give the a show a different rating, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. he just uh he he just goes he's told us all kinds of stories, showed us a lot of stuff that he's found and and uh but he's serious. He's this is how he makes his living and he's got a wife and two kids and lives in Fort Lauderdale, so you know, he's gotta make some decent money out of it and uh but it isn't just Oak Island for him. He does he dives on wrecks uh, down along the Gold Coast of Florida, and he is on other shows, and he writes mm-hmm. booklets right. about metal detecting, and he goes to metal detecting seminars and gives or shows, you know, and gives seminars. So he he's making it however he can. But he
0: yeah promotes golf carts on the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. Now I, we're we're supposed to buy that. What was it, a Honda it's Honda, a Honda golf cart? It was something? just it was like, nice
2: it looked awesome i really wanted it (laughs) well and and jack was driving it like a maniac and i I had to laugh about him getting out of it with a helmet on because (laughs) who wears a helmet a golf cart but Mm -hmm. when when i saw how jack was driving it he probably said i'm not riding with i'm not riding with you unless i get a helmet because that's funny we could tip over but yeah they were that was major product placement there with the winch and the the word honda and everything
1: uh, when i saw them bust out the winch i was like how is that thing gonna lift a log it looks so like it's like you can push it over <laughs> like that, that <laughs> little cart." just but i right guess there? it did a good job that's yeah. pretty cool yeah uh here's a question for you uh now if you get to we we like to when we watch oak island we play a drinking game uh and usually it's when they say shaft we take a drink uh when they talk about William Shakespeare, we take a drink. <laughs> uh, when when the narrator has a rhetorical question, uh, could it be or you know et that one's
0: optional, but it, we are drinking water too. So yeah, it's, yeah. Oh, I know, was going to say
2: you'd be drunk within the first ten minutes of the show.
0: So
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what would you what what would you propose as someone who's been behind the scenes of the show? Uh, what how what what rule would you like to put in?
2: Well. Uh, I actually like uh, Rick's boots on the ground because uh, I experience that. I mean, when you see it on the show, you don't get a true uh, distance of how far Smith's Cove is to the Money Pit or or how uh, scraggly the woods are and how it would be difficult to get in there with a the metal detector unless they brush hogged him and all that. But when you go there, you see it all and you see what they're up against, you see what the equipment that's laying around rusting that other people used and all that. So it, it really does change your perspective of, of, the, of the island. And I know that it, it, a lot of times they'll show them driving from the Money Pit to Smith's Cove. Well, it's literally a 500-foot walk. But now that they've put the road in and the platform and all that, you can't walk it so you would have to get in your you would have to get in your vehicle and drive around the horn to pull in so that makes sense now because when I saw that I thought my god you can walk that in a couple of minutes uh, you know but it also
1: looks it. sexier when you're getting out of a dark SUV with tons yeah, of windows a dark <laughs>
2: SUV, yeah <laughs> um, which I got to riding that with uh, Doug and Rick that's what we rode in up to uh, uh, New Ross and Again, they didn't say what to say, but they reminded us, you are going to be on film. We are going to be filming, you know. So we talked about the theory and about the medallion and how we hoped this gentleman would show up to to show us where he found it. And, you know, just logistics about it. And we talked, that's when I first found out on that trip up there that Rick owned that little piece of parchment. And whether he bought it personally from Dan or what, I don't know, but I didn't know if it, the thing even existed beyond photographs of it. And so when I was talking about the parchment, cause I already given my full presentation the day before he said, I own that parchment. I said, Oh, you do? Oh my God. I'd like to see it. Well, I didn't get to see it, but they put it on the show this year. That's the first time they actually showed the actual parchment on the show. He said we've been, we've had it tested that it is absolutely parchment, but we have not gone to the extent yet of testing the ink or the carbon dating because it's so small. We know mm-hmm. we destroy part of it, right? And I've also
1: heard it. that you can. I, I've heard that you can do DNA testing on parchment. And yeah, because
2: it's from... a biological; it's made from sheepskin, so right, yeah. And
1: so you can actually see like what family of sheep. Oh, or if it came oh, from the wow. sheep as another document. I mean like so it's, you can it's geolocate. Yeah, it you is. can literally like yeah, it's crazy. Like the like just the fact that parchment is not paper pulp like CSI Oak <laughs> yeah. Island.
2: CSI Oak Island. Yeah, I it. think that I would uh I would focus so much attention on that parchment uh make sure that it's india ink so that logically it sure. would have smeared if it was in a water soaked. Sure. sure. Uh like you said if there's any way to do DNA on it or carbon dating to find out what era it came from, I mean, it would answer so many questions and it's a clue that they got right in their hands, but it is so small. The photos you see of it are, you know, you make, it makes it look like it's, you know, uh, half a page, but it is just a little scrap. So Mm -hmm. anything they do to it is going to destroy part of it. So I, I think if they're going to do that, they have to get a really good lab that's, they can absolutely, Count on what that lab tells them uh, when they do it, because they know they're going to destroy it. It's kind of like the shroud of Turin, you know. They give them like Mm -hmm. two little threads off the edge or something, you know. But this Mm -hmm. only has a few edges to it. It's so small. So, when I imagine,
1: yeah, sorry, Marty. (laughs) And I imagine that the actual database of sheep genetics (laughs) is pretty small. Well, that
2: Tobias guy over in Germany probably knows about it, though. The one that dated the medal, um, some of of their, you know, not to talk ill about them, but some of their experts have been very sketchy in my mind. Others have seemed to be, uh, you know, and and maybe I just agree with the ones that agree with me, but, but, you know, some of them, uh, it's like, you you gotta be kidding. You got that guy on there. And, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but, uh, I don't, the the, the, the Laginas don't make the choices on the editing. The only thing they do is they're just trying. I always equate it to they're going down one road, which is to try to figure out Oak Island and the gold and the, at least the history. Prometheus is going down another uh, road, which is to create a good show that History Channel will buy from them that will generate uh, advertising revenue and all that. So, they have two different ultimate goals, but once in a while those two paths will cross. So you know, so they cooperate when the paths cross. But they are, you know, they they're each on a different adventure, and uh, but without Prometheus, we wouldn't know anything because you know they they weren't about to go publish a magazine every month. Uh, Here's what we're doing on Oak Island. Yeah. So Prometheus has given us that inside look to what's going on. And again, no matter how much they edit it they're not controlling it from my experience of everything I've seen and, and what I was involved in personally, they are not controlling. Yeah.
1: Right. And I would, I would say Prometheus is, uh, much how like everybody talks about the, the reader's digest article. I mean, Prometheus is a freaking history channel show. I mean, it's, it's getting so much further than any readers, Reader's digest article ever get. And it's, even if we don't solve this in our, like, in the next few years, there will be other people who want to carry the torch of Oak Island. I know that.
2: Yeah, and that's what Rick and I talk about, is the the legend didn't die, and uh, you know, it'll it, even if they aren't the ones, as you said, that do it, so much has been preserved, and now things are getting scientific scrutiny with carbon dating and and tree rings and all that that weren't, a lot of that wasn't done until the earliest ones I think were about in the 1960s and carbon dating itself was uh, new at that point. But now they're categorizing, they're tagging items. Uh, They have a big display of a lot of the wood they found what they call at depth and they have it all numbered. And then in a catalog somewhere, they have what what kind of wood they thought it was, where it was found you know, mm-hmm. and what the carbon dating and all that was. So the database itself, I don't know if they have a database, but I think their goal is, Rick told me before they even got that little building uh, that where they put Zena's uh, research, he told me they were going to build a building. That was in spring of last year. And he said, we. I got my partners to uh, donate a substantial amount of money for it. Uh, I think what happened was Zena's death was a little unexpected and now they received all those boxes and they had to have a place to put them so they brought in that tiny house and made that their original uh, archive room but I think their plans are to have it much bigger than that and when he told me about it he said I want it to be a place where there's no TV cameras no tourists just uh, researchers where you go in there and you can brainstorm, six of you can go in there and just look, is this crap, you know, is this real, does this connect anywhere? Uh, And so part of that to me would be a database. I I don't like, I'm not left brain, so I don't like databases for the sake of databases, but what I like (laughs) about them is that you can look at the, you know, you can call up everything that was around a certain time period in history, or you can call up everything... You know, in different categories, and then you can see a pattern. Say, oh my God, out of right. the hundred things that happen, sixty of them point to this, yeah. whatever you know. And so, I'm hoping that that's what they're doing in in some form or another, whether it's by hand or in a a big mainframe computer. But well,
1: uh, I, I would think that Laird Nevin is actually essential to to really doing a timeline and and like where were items at what point and when did we find it, you know, like, yeah, I, I would imagine that's part of like something in his area of expertise as an archeologist.
2: Yeah. And he probably is required to do it as, you know, government archeologists uh, overseeing them. Right. Uh, and uh, so uh, there's just, there's just so many moving parts and, we're seeing an edited version. We're seeing literally the Reader's Digest version of it every week, you know, but there's so many moving parts. And nobody, even me, probably has a remote appreciation for the effort that goes into five minutes of film. I mean, in my case, you know, they, like I said, I probably was filmed for up to five hours total, and they used about 10 minutes, I would say, But um, in doing spoils piles, sure, you're going to see the bone they find or whatever, but you're not going to see thousands of rocks. And the only thing that's crazy about that is them using the fire hose on it. But uh, (laughs) it's just kind of funny. But, uh, I mean, that would never be in a normal archaeological setting. But I think what's going on there is it's been dynamited and drilled and, and bulldozed so many times that, culture and heritage department says, wow, there's nothing going to be, you know, a virgin territory here, you know, so uh, have at it. If you find anything, at least you found something that we didn't Mm -hmm. know about. Um, But for any category that you can think of, because just like, for instance, paperwork, if they have something loaned to the uh, museum, I've worked uh, with museums before. There's all kinds of paperwork just for one item. You can donate a postcard and there's, you know, 10 pieces of paper <laughs> generated with signatures and everything else. And uh, all all the contracts with all the third-party drillers and bulldozers and all that, that all has to be legal. The theorists like me, you know, they flew us up there, got us the room. Uh, all of that, all you know, all the paperwork for that, all the paperwork for the items they sell in the gift shop, all the paperwork for the tours. In fact, their tours are like a Jimmy Buffett concert. They sell out in about an hour. They <laughs> announce wow. the day they're going to have them, and they sell out in about an hour. Well, for two years in a row, it blew their system up, and they had to go in manually and rectify a lot of uh, people's orders. So this year, or well, 2018 was the first year, or maybe it was this year, actually 2019, they hired a firm kind of like a Ticketron that's used right. to massive orders at mm-hmm. within a half hour or so. And uh, that was the first year they did that because they were just backpedaling so much in the past trying to figure out who legitimately got a tour and who didn't. But they go, all the tours go that fast. So uh, that's a lot of work to do there. So when you think about all these, well, and then the catering, they have it catered uh, breakfast sure. and lunch is catered. and. You know, so all the work that goes on in the background and then it's edited down to the highlights for the show. And I know some people have said that they'd like to see more of that work in the background than the Knights Templar writing in sepia tone again. And, uh, you know, but, uh, but they have to keep the show lively and they obviously mm-hmm. know what they're doing because... They are generally the number one cable TV show during their um, season, and that beats out like all the news programs and all the other reality shows and sitcoms and all that. Yeah. So they obviously know what they're doing, and so who can fault them? And I'm talking about Prometheus there. They. And
1: we're we're looking we're looking online right now, and 2019 tours are completely sold out. There's yeah. no way to get in unless unless you're on an email basis with uh, Rick. There goes our road <laughs> trip.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, he actually—I can't spill the beans too much—but he actually asked me if I would go somewhere significant with them in June, Ooh. and Ooh. I said, "Do cats wear climbing gear?" Does it? Uh,
1: does it? Does it rhyme with <laughs> "mew cross"?
2: No. Is, is it, no, it doesn't rhyme. With... <laughs> uh, it Rhymes with. Uh, 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 a, Stotland, a Stotland I can't think of a word that <laughs> it, rhyme to it But with um, but he was only making a preliminary inquiry because they don't know they have to talk to everybody and they have to get the finances and the trips and all that so right. it may not even happen but he just wanted to know if the question was if we can get our ducks in a row to do this would you want to go right. with us you know and of course I've been over there three times now and Toured quite a bit of the of Scotland. It's about may, maybe roughly the size of South Carolina. So you know you can you can get around it. It, it. You can't most of it's highlands and mountains that you can't get into anyway unless you want to hike. But the main roads are just beautiful, and you can go like seventy miles an hour on them. So you're riding on this asphalt road going down scenery that looks like it's from a thousand years ago. They don't all the all the piping is under all the wiring and everything's underground. They don't have the only thing that they have that looks uh, modern are the uh, things to detect. If you're speeding, (laughs) there's a little (laughs) post along the road. And if you see one of them coming up, you slow down. But uh, so anyway, I don't, and that's out in the highlands, but if you get in Glasgow and Edinburgh, they're pretty compressed cities. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, so I don't know if that's going to happen, but what that tells me is, he's not giving up and that doesn't necessarily oh. mean there's going to be a season season seven right he has
1: that. nothing to do with the seasons he right. that's just prometheus and it, i i have a feeling that rick is going to be doing this work for the rest of his life yeah I, that's Absolutely. my feeling yeah and my my intuition from watching it well yeah, james james i have to say we have we that's all the time we have for but uh Thank you so much for being on the show with us again, and uh, we we absolutely loved your segment, mm-hmm. and we really appreciate your insight uh, and your theory, and and it's really great to hear the behind behind the scenes. So. Well, it was,
2: it was fun doing this. So uh, maybe there will be a third episode next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, keep us
0: posted on your on your research and your studies, and uh, you know we want to hear what you're up to. Um, yeah. And uh, when that fourth and book comes out, or any new if, breaking news, let us know.
2: If the if any of your listeners end up buying Oak Island Nights, that's my third book. I don't think they're going to be disappointed because it is so chuck full. I mean, through the writing of it, I had to go back and delete uh, simpler stuff so I could squeeze shoehorn in, you know, the more uh, current finds or the more important finds. So I mean, it's packed. Every page is packed with. With some really good stuff, and if you're into Scottish history, Nova Scotia history, into stolen treasures and swashbuckling and epic stories and all of that, uh, <laughs> oh, you know we are. Right and, and, where,
1: and just say say one time for our listeners where they could buy Oak Island Nights.
2: Well, the main place is on Amazon. I publish through Amazon; they distribute it to other sources, but uh, you know, I I work through them so. Uh, Amazon is called Oak Island nights. You're going to find two other books on there by me too. Um, but this is the main one. Uh, if you want to buy all three and have a set, that would be great too. <laughs> <laughs> so your uh, books
1: are Oak Island, 1632 Oak Island, missing links and Oak Island nights. Right. Thank you very much, James McQuiston uh, scholar of Oak Island and uh, member of the Royal Scottish antiqui- in- antiquitary? Uh, I can't antiqui- say it. Antiquaries. <laughs> Antiquaries. 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 Took me a while, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank okay. you so much for being on the show, and, and we hope you have a great
2: day. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank, Thank you, James. Take care.
1: Well, I really like that episode, Luke. What did you think?
0: I Every time we talk to James, it is an, an immense pleasure. His theories really debunk the mystery, I think, of what's happening on oak island i feel oftentimes partially thanks to the oak island tv show there are these associations of like the paranormal or absurd like the theories as to what could be in the money pit but james i think has really hit the nail on the head with this theory
1: i'm really really disappointed that he's written off shakespeare as a theory
0: well he didn't totally write off shakespeare i mean you know me i'm that's one of my favorite theories about the island but he uh he said that it's plausible that there could be writings of Sir Francis Bacon on the island, but it kind of takes some of the uh, the wind out of that ludicrous theory.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, he's talking about how uh, Francis Bacon and Alexander knew each other, and and I I actually think that it's still plausible, even with. Even with McQuiston's theory, I believe that those two theories can be compati- compatible um, because who's to say that Francis Bacon didn't send along his most important works with, with the Alexander family.
0: Of course, like James said, that they could just be as simple as, oh, you're starting a new town on the other side of the world. Take my writings and put them in the university when you make one. Exactly. It makes perfect sense. So- exactly. Exactly.
1: The Pirate King, right?
0: The Pirate King, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I hope we get a chance to talk to James again. That was so much fun.
1: Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, Look forward to our next episode, listeners. We're going to be discussing Mary Magdalene, because we received a very interesting email from from a... One of our listeners. A devotee, let's say. Not necessarily of the podcast.
0: We... um... We mentioned Mary Magdalene in one of our previous episodes, and we have been receiving a lot of listener feedback about that specific comment. So stay tuned, and we will see you next week.